The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It is with great lump in my throat, as it were, and sadness that I, I tell you what, this is the last time, at least in this study, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 3 in detail uh, because we finished uh, Romans 3 and we'll be going to Romans chapter 4 in our next study. Now, what we've decided to do after every chapter, uh, the 16 chapters in the book of Romans, is to stop, pull the car over, and enjoy the view. This is such a powerful argument and explanation that Paul is giving about the gospel that we want to stop and make sure we're capturing the summation and the summary of every chapter's theology as we're moving uh, through so that by the end we can come back and we'll have 16 downloads or 16 sermons or 16 set of notes that you hopefully can look at and get the full argument of the book of Romans through the mind of the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans we've been studying for some months now is Paul's clear, forthright exclamation and explanation of what the gospel is and what its implications are. It's significant that he sends it to Rome, the great empirical city, the the head of the world, the most important city in the world at his time. He understands that his mission is to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. If you go back to the book of Acts, he kept wanting to go to synagogues. He kept wanting to go to the the Jews. And God, in his amazing providence, took a Jew of all Jews, one who was trained by Gamaliel, one who understood the law and all of its arguments and implications as laying forth the gospel. And he took Saul, made him Paul, and sent him primarily as a missionary, not to the Jews, but to who? The Gentiles remarkable that God would do that. But as he did that, in the genius of God, Paul dragged with him all of the Old Testament understanding that he had accumulated by studying the law, by studying the Old Testament, by becoming an expert in the scriptures. It's significant as he moves through these early chapters in the book of uh, Romans that he's bouncing back and forth between talking about the, the universal appeal of the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and then he, the universal condemnation of the Gentiles and the Jews underneath the weight of their sin. Paul was so perfectly and uniquely fitted to be an expert in both categories. It's also interesting that when he's making these descriptions, He fully intends for the Gentiles to hear him talk about the gospel to Jews. And he fully intends for the Jews to hear him talk about the gospel to the Gentiles. It's critical that we understand that the gospel is the culmination and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Not an addition to, not an appendix toward those first 39 books in the Bible. Rome was the center of the world. It was a center in government. The commerce and trade of the world came through and from Rome. Art came from Rome. Education was shaped in Rome. The export of religion came from Rome so that ultimately, a generation after uh, Paul uh, would, would send this letter out, the Christians would be actually accused of the capital crime of atheism. 
Because the export of religion from Rome was that Caesar is God, and to not bow the knee to Caesar as God was to be anti-God, atheistic. Paul's strategy is not difficult to understand. He wants the gospel riding the most powerful rocket into the heavens to explode over the world and show forth the greatness of Jesus Christ. And that great rocket was Rome. To have an impact in Rome was to touch the world. It was the crossroads of everything in his day. He was attacking Satan's strategic foothold He was attacking Satan's fort and fortress by taking the gospel to Rome. That's what the book of Romans is. Frederick Godet comments, we talked about this months ago. In studying the epistle to the Romans, we feel ourselves at every word face to face with the unfathomable. He's right. Every page we turn in the book of Romans makes me just scratch my head and say, really? Really? It is so counterintuitive and non-instinctive to believe the gospel and to believe that believing the gospel brings salvation. I'm tempted, and I'm going to restrain myself from talking about the implications of Paul's epistle to the Romans, to living in a, in a great city like Kansas City. God has positioned us right in the geographical center of the country. We have a loudspeaker to two states, to the world as it comes to us, and as we travel out from Kansas City to be as strategic as Rome in the issuing forth of the gospel. To love Christ, to love his gospel and good news, is to love to see it broadcast, to love to see it go out. We just read it earlier, our mission statement at Mission Road Bible Church, we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life. That could, in a very small, bullet-pointed fashion, be a summary even of the message in the book of Romans. Know the gospel, appreciate the gospel, send out the gospel, and be faithful to living the gospel. The gospel is the church's song. It's our national anthem. The gospel is our message as a Christian. The gospel is the best thought any Christian can entertain with his mind. It's the most important topic of any believer's conversation. And at the heart of the gospel, at the blazing center of what it means to be saved, is a doctrine that rocked the Jewish world in Paul's day, that sent the Greek and the Gentile world into jeering hysterics of saying that's a ridiculous notion of how to be right with God or the gods. It's a doctrine that we've come to know as sola fide. It's a Latin term, sola, meaning only, fide, meaning faith, faith alone. We've been studying in chapter 3 the doctrine of sola fide, the doctrine that God saves by grace 
through faith, and that faith is alone what saves us, but that faith is not alone, it's accompanied by good works. Yet no work, no one can ever brag, boast, or point to the fact that they have lived well enough, they have done enough good works, their good outweighs the bad, they've graded themselves on a scale, and they're better than other people who should go to hell. No work of any human can ever please God. That's really bad news. That even the best of humanity can't please God, and we're certainly not in that category. So where does that put us? That's what chapter 3 is about. Why do we keep talking about sola fide? Why will we keep talking about salvation by grace through faith for many months and years in the book of Romans? I love what Luther said. They ask him that. Why does Luther keep preaching the doctrine of sola fide? And this was his answer. It's really, really sweet. Luther said, there are few of us who know and understand this doctrine of sola fide. And I treat it again and again and again because I greatly fear that after we have laid our head to rest, it will soon be forgotten and will disappear again. And indeed, we cannot grasp or exhaust Christ, the eternal righteousness of God, with one sermon or one thought. For to learn and appreciate him is an everlasting lesson which we shall not be able to finish, I love this, either in this life or in the one to come. As amazed as we are that we get to go to heaven because God sanctifies God justifies by grace. He saves through faith alone. As amazing as that is now, wait till we get to heaven and say, you mean we got this by that? So we started in the beginning. The book of Romans is clearly laid out into four sections. Chapters one through four are how to understand the gospel. Chapters five through eight are how to live out the gospel. Chapters 9 to 11 are how to be humbled by the gospel by looking at God's dealing with Israel. And chapters 12 through 16 are how to fellowship with the body and live in the world with reference to the gospel. I tell you that to tell you where we are. We're in the third chapter of those first four chapters, which are an explanation of the gospel. In chapter 1, he lays out his introduction, and then he says, listen, every Gentile is condemned because of their actions Their actions don't condemn them. Their actions reveal what's already in their heart. Not only that, the chapter ends by saying, they don't only do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. We applaud and give standing ovations to others who are in sin and doing sin. Why? Because the more we see other people sin, the more we feel justified in our own sin, and it increases that curve on which we grade ourselves that doesn't exist in heaven. As he tells the Gentile world, you are condemned under the law of God written on your heart. You have no excuse. Even one sin is enough to condemn you. And our lives are full of sins. Then he turns in chapter 2 and says to the Jews, who he knew, because he was a Jew who had been converted, he knew were sitting there saying, that's right, Paul, you let them have it. And he says, who are you to judge? Because actually the thing that you're critical of the Gentiles about, you do not only in action and deed, but you do it in your heart. And he spends all of chapter two saying, really, you think you're better than that? 
better than the Gentiles? Well, that leads him to a very interesting place in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he begins talking about what he understands and knows the objections to the Jewish gospel would be. It's almost as if he's thinking, what would I say if I, in quotation mark, were a Jew and this were being laid on me? Well, he knows that because he'd already answered that to himself. So in chapter 3, he asks a series of questions. It's, if you read chapter 3, it's question, answer, question, answer, question, and answer. And in chapter 3, he gives, through a series of questions, rhetorical questions that he asks and answers, he gives six answers for the Jews, logical objection to the gospel. Now, I know you're saying, well, I'm not Jewish. Some of you are, and we're glad you're here and converted. But if you're saying, I'm not a Jew and I don't care, well, these will help you in evangelizing Jews, number one. Number two, what he does in talking about the Jewish objections to the gospel is he ties those objections to the natural objections that all of us would have to the wonder of the gospel. So let's ask these questions that Paul asks and see how he answers them. First question is in verses 1 and 2. If God offers salvation to all, Jews and Gentiles, hang on a second. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? It's a question they would ask. Now, wait a minute, Paul. If you're saying salvation is accessible to all, are you really saying that me being a Jew, being given the law, being uh, given the commandments, being in the community, having the sign of the circumcision, that there's no advantage to me at all? Well, his answer is this. There's a great advantage to being Jew. You know why? You were given. Israel was entrusted with God's word. Verse 1. What advantage has the Jew or what benefit is the circumcision? You would expect him after chapter 2 to say, there's no advantage. You're all condemned and you all need the gospel. And though that's true, listen to what he says. Great. It's a great advantage. It's great to be a Jew. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God. They were given the law, the, the writings, the prophets, the histories, the first 39 books of the Bible. They had been given what God expects and the definition of who God is. No pagan religion ever had what the Jews had in the gospel, excuse me, in the law. What did they get in the law? You know what they got? God says, I want to tell you who I am. I'm going to reveal myself to you. That's the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Here's who I am. And also, I want to tell you what, what I expect. Several months ago, we read a, an ancient Near Eastern prayer in our study of Deuteronomy. It was a painful prayer. We'll, we'll revisit that in, in the coming months where this, this gentleman is praying. He says, oh, to the God I know or may not know. Oh, to the goddess I know or may not know. Oh, to the God or goddess I know or may not know. Oh, to the one who have offended in a way that I don't understand or may not understand. He goes on and on and on trying to cover every possible base. And in that prayer, he's basically saying, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're like. And I certainly don't know what you expect. But I feel my conscience being borne down with my sin. And I need to make this right. And I don't know how. Through the law, God gave the Jews the definition of his image. 
He gave them who he is. He gave them his name, Yahweh, the great I am. And then he said, this is what I expect. We often look at the Jews and say, oh, those poor Jews under the law. How terrible it was to have have been under the law for all those years. They would have said just the opposite. In fact, read Psalm 119 and read Psalm 19 that extols the law. And that's not... By application, it's about the whole Bible, but primarily that's a Jew looking at the first five books of the Bible and saying, thank you that we have your law, your statutes, your ordinances, your commandments. Why? Because they knew who God was and they knew what was expected of them. That's grace. Now, if that was a Jew in the Old Testament, given the law and the definition of God, How much more are we accountable who have been given more revelation of God, the definition of his image in Jesus Christ, and way more of what God expects in the New Testament? Paul says, to be given the word of God is the highest privilege. There was great advantage in you being Jewish. A second question he asks is this. Since Israel was unfaithful, and he spent chapter 2 telling them how unfaithful Israel had been. They'd been given the law, they didn't obey it. Since Israel was unfaithful, are God's promises to the Jews nullified? Look at verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, he summarizes their their, uh, unfaithfulness. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found, a, found true and, and every man be found a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And again, we spend a lot of time going through these verses, but the answer that Paul gives is simply this. Is God not going to fulfill his promises because the Jews were unfaithful? He says, no, God is always faithful to his promises. Can I just tell you that the promises God made geographically and nationally to Israel in the Old Testament will one day be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. If God didn't tell them the truth, then why should we believe him now? God's always faithful to his promises. And put yourself in their, their um, togas for a second, okay? They're listening to this and they're saying, hang on, if God made promises to the Jews about land, about Israel, and now he's, now he's come back and said, the gospel is the way to be saved. What about us? And Paul says, no, let every man be found a liar and God be found true. He will fulfill those promises. Another objection that the Jews would have And his third question is this, if our unrighteousness, if it's our unrighteousness, by the way, our sinfulness, that draws the righteousness of God, wouldn't he be unfair to condemn us for it, our unrighteousness? I mean, follow his statement. God saves and gives righteousness to those who are unrighteousness by grace through faith. And if that's the case, that him saving us from our unrighteousness glorifies him, then are we really in trouble for being unrighteous if the whole thing glorifies him in the end? His answer, no. God would never do wrong to do right. And you find that in verses 5 to 8. 
If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. He basically says, I can't believe I'm even talking about this. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through the, my lie, the truth of God abounded in his glory, he's speaking in hyperbole here, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. He's saying the same thing he'll say in chapter 6. Should we sin that grace might abound? Answer there and here, may it never be. Even though God has saved us from unrighteousness, it draws us into a life of living righteously. A fourth question that Paul asks in the voice of the Jew is, if God has a chosen people, that is Israel, does he favor anyone over the other? I mean, aren't we his special people? And doesn't he like us better than the rest? Now, this is the heart of Paul's final exclamation point on the condemnation of all men. You know what his answer is? No, God doesn't play favorites. There is no one righteous, and he says, not even what? Not even how many? Not even one. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they, the Jews? Are we better than, than Gentiles? Not at all. For we already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That was chapter 1 and chapter 2. As it is written, now he goes back and quotes Old Testament scripture to make his point. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. No one gets it. There is none who seeks for God. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to go find God without God prompting that in their heart. All, there's a key word, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat talks about the, the speech. Jesus said from the, from the uh, uh, abundance of words comes the definition of your heart. Out of the mouth comes unrighteousness. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of snakes, asps, is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We think of James who said, what comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. He goes on to their action. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's a summary statement. No fear of God before their eyes. No reverence. No honoring of who he is. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. There is a key verse. All the world is accountable to God. In what way? Responding to or rejecting the gospel. Because the works of the flesh, by the works of the flesh, no law, no, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, what is he saying there? Very clearly. Last exclamation point on chapter one, chapter two, half of chapter three. Everyone's undone. Everyone before God is in need of salvation. Everyone is need, 
in need of a Savior. No man will ever look at God and say, look at all I've done, and God will pat them on the back and say, come into my heavenly kingdom. Human conscience is absolutely depraved. Human character is absolutely depraved. Human conversation, depraved. Speech is from the graves like a deadly snake. Conduct is absolutely wicked in verses 15 to 18. Quick to shed murder, commit murder. No fear of God. The conclusion, both Jews and Gentiles have sinned against God and both Jews and Gentiles stand accused before God. See how the genius of of Paul, as he's dealing with the The hypothetical Jewish objector, all of these principles are still in the heart of a Gentile as well. He goes on to a fifth question. Okay, hang on. If all are unrighteous, then how does God save anyone? I mean, just, it gives me chills how he just leads them along and sets them up to ask the question that the book wants to answer. Well, if all are unsaved, if all are condemned, if all are unrighteous, even the ones who have the law, even the ones who have the law written on their heart, and no one can can get to God by their good works, if everyone is condemned, then how is anyone saved? Well, we've been studying. The answer is that God imputes or grants, puts to our account his righteousness. Just Pause and breathe that air. We are granted alien, outside of us righteousness. What kind? God's righteousness. What kind of righteousness in that? Perfection. He gives us that, that standing, by grace. And how do we attain it? Through faith. Believing something. Believing what? Believing what he has done in sending his son and what he did in crushing his son and what he did in raising his son. Beginning in verse 21 is a change in the entire direction of the book of Romans. What he says to the Jew would have been staggering. What he says to your conscience and mine is staggering. But now, listen, now apart, apart from the law, apart from you doing anything that you perceive as good, apart from the law, separate from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What? How? being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is nothing new. The law and the prophets pointed to this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that clear? For the Jews, right? Because he's the Messiah, not just them. For the Gentiles, right? Because the Jews rejected him. No, for all those who do what? Believe Believe, who have faith, who have put, in, that put their confidence. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in what God has done. We believe God has accomplished our salvation. We're just in trouble before him. 
There's no distinction, he says. Jews and Greeks. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, which God, he told everybody. He displayed it publicly as a propitiation. This is the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus in his blood through faith. Do you believe what Jesus did on the cross for those who would believe? This was to demonstrate his, this. Just hear it for the first time. God crucifying his son who was righteous was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the patience, the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time at the cross so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus, in Jesus. So then he says, hey, okay, if it's by God, if it's through faith, because of grace, if it's in what God has done and not what we do, then let me ask you a question, he says, where's the boasting Who can brag about what they've done, how they are, what they're like, how much money they make, how strong they are, where they live, if they're Jewish, if they have the circumcision or not? Where's boasting? Here's the answer. It's excluded. Based on what? By what kind of law? Of works? No, by, by a law of faith. Oh, wow. The law was intended to be received by faith, to believe it. God never, God never set up a system in the Old Testament that if you do these things, he'll take you to heaven. The Jews had wrongly applied that. And by the way, before they get too far down this road of saying, really? He uses all of chapter four to say, yes, really. Let me show you an example, Abraham, your father, and how he was justified by faith. For we maintain a man, and I've told you, please underline, please highlight, please start, whatever you do in your Bible, do it to this verse. We maintain that a man is justified, big word for made right, declared forgiven, declared not guilty. Are you ready for this? Declared perfect in the eyes of God. He is justified by faith. Apart from stuff you do, works to the law. In fact, is God the God of the Jews only? No, no. he's the God of the Gentiles too. Um, God of the Jews, God of the Gentiles, he's both. Since God indeed, who will, God indeed who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, that's one God. One God, one way of salvation for everyone. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. There's one God, one way of salvation, and it's through his Son, Jesus Christ, by faith in him. So the the Jews would then ask a question. Okay, I'm, I'm following you, Paul. I'm tracking with you. But if that's true, then let me ask you this. My pride is the law. You've told me in verse one that it's great to be a Jew because I have law. If that's true, what you said, the salvation is by grace through faith, then if God saves by faith, Is God's law irrelevant? You told me it was great to be a Jew because I have God's oracles, God's law. If that's true, that he saves by faith, is it irrelevant that I have God's law? His answer is really interesting. No, no. Actually, salvation through faith fulfills the law. 
Verse 31, do we nullify the law through faith? That's what they ask. May it never be on the contrary. Actually, we fulfill it. We establish it. We live it out. This was the intention that the law was given to believe in the God who justifies not the man who can obey the law. Because everyone, including the Jews, are unrighteousness, verses 9 through 12, through 20. And God's righteousness comes from the death of Jesus, verses 21 to 31 tell us. Go back to what Godet said. It is the most, the gospel is the most unfathomable thing. No human who ever sat down, as genius as they may have been, and said, I'm going to, I'm going to invent a religion through which and by which a man is saved and can be right as an unrighteous man before a right and righteous and holy God. And I'm going to do that by this. God would send his only begotten son to come and live a perfect life and die a substitution death in the sinner's place as the righteous God-man. And if I was inventing this religion, would I say, and by the way, that was God's plan, Isaiah 53, it pleased God to crush his son and then to prove it all, I'm going to have him dead. How dead? Buried dead. Three days. And then have him rise from the dead. And then have 500 people witness him being alive after a crucifixion. That doesn't sound like any Babylonian myth. That doesn't sound like any Roman religion. That doesn't sound like any Greek mythology. That doesn't sound like any Egyptian forms of religion. That, that is way outside of imagination. The gospel does the unimaginable in the most unimaginable way. Through the gospel, God saves sinners by grace through faith in Jesus and his work. We do not have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus. Remember how the book started? Go back over to Romans 1. What is the good news? What is the gospel of God? What's God's great good news? This is almost a summary of chapter 3 in the first three verses. Paul, verse 1, chapter 1. A slave of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which, here's the Old Testament, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is nothing new. Jesus was prophesied. But connect the last phrase of verse 1, skip the parentheses just for a moment of verse 2, and connect it to the first phrase of Chapter of verse 3. The gospel of God concerning his son. That's what we say in our mission statement. We long to have people value Jesus Christ above all else. The good news of God is his son, who he is, what he's done. Talk about the Jews had the law to explain who God was and to tell what he expects. That's exactly what Jesus came for. But he went one step beyond that. He didn't just tell us what God expects. Jesus said, God expects you to be perfect. And you're never going to make the cut. But he did for those who would believe 
that he did. We've said throughout this series that if you are like these original readers, you should be saying, that's, that's too good to be true. All my sin gone, all my guilt done because of the death of God in flesh, the Son of God, who would, who would, who, who would dare to, who would, in the audacious nature of the reverse of human logic, die for sinners? And that I receive that by, by just believing it? Romans begs for the response. That's too simple. That's too easy. That's too good to be true. And if you feel that tension, you have rightly understood the first three chapters of Romans. How can it be? How can it be? How can this be true? And can it be that I should gain an interest, a position in heaven through a Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be, what? That thou... Do you understand the identity of, of Jesus? My God should die for me? We need to prepare for the Lord's table at this time. I want to ask you to bow your heads if you would. John, you can come up. and I, I want us to just meditate on this reality it's unfathomable reality. That God would make salvation so simple and easy for us to receive. And yet, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, it's absolutely free and yet costs us everything. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>